So we are in our second week uh, in a new series on evangelism. So last week, we looked at the topic of prayer and how to be a faithful, effective evangelist uh, starts with prayer. And so as a church, we are committing to being a church that prays for those who do not know the Lord. And as, as we pray, we're shaped as those who have a heart and a sensitivity and compassion uh, for those who are lost. And we, we want them to come to know Jesus. And those of you in this room this morning, you don't claim to follow Christ. You're here because someone invited you, or perhaps you were just curious a little bit more. What, what are these Christians up to on a Sunday? What is, who is Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? I, I hope you hear this morning uh, more of our heart for you, more of our heart related to why we want you to know Christ and what it means to follow Christ. Because what, what I'm going to do this morning and where we're going to go this morning is a little bit dangerous. And this is what I mean. Uh, for those of us who are American, uh, for those of us who have embraced American culture in any way, shape, or form, uh, to, to touch upon some certain aspects of our culture can be a bit dangerous because you start to step on some toes related to identity and values. And what, where I want to go this morning is I want to talk about how culture can sometimes import baggage into the gospel message. And what we're going to see from Acts, this passage in Acts 15, is that what was happening is that certain cultural values and cultural practices were beginning to impede upon the clarity and the purity of the gospel, and it was creating some problems. And so for us who are in this culture, and I think in some unique ways, when we start talking about the cultural baggage that we can import into the gospel and how that can affect both the way we live as Christians and the way we communicate the gospel, you can start to create issues and people get a little bit uncomfortable. And so I want to be, be careful about what I say. I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but I want to push on us in ways that we all need to be pushed. And I include myself in this this morning. Because here, the reality is, is that we cannot escape our culture. As humans living at a particular time and place, we are encultured beings. So our language and our values and our morals and our art and our food and our politics, the way that we live in our families, our economy, our ethnicity, our geographical landscape, everything that is tied into our culture and what it means to live in a particular place in a particular time. These things shape us. And there is much truth and good and beauty in our culture. However, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. It is shot through with sin because we are sinners. There is no perfect culture on this earth. And so we must be careful that we do not automatically equate even the good or the more positive things about our culture with the gospel. Because even the good is imperfect. And so we might not go so far as to say this, one has to be an American to be a Christian. No one's going to be that ridiculous, I hope not. But if we're not careful, we can sometimes give the impression that to be a good Christian, one must be a good American. And that subtly can come out in our behavior and in the way that we talk about the gospel with others. So whether it is the positive or negative aspects of our culture, when cultural identity is elevated too highly, the gospel becomes subservient to culture, or the gospel gets narrowed. However, the truth is the culture must always submit to the gospel. 
not the gospel to the culture. And when it comes to evangelism, we must be careful about inserting cultural baggage into how we talk to other people about what it means to follow Jesus. Because as I said, for one, we're in danger of polluting and diluting the gospel, and we end up robbing it of its power. But second, we're going to misrepresent it to unbelievers. And they begin to, can begin to equate what it means to follow Jesus with certain cultural and political positions that have more to do with being American than following Jesus and being a Christian. And so they'll reject it on those grounds. Now make no mistake, if we remove all that baggage, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to go, oh yeah, sure, I'll follow Jesus, cool. But let's make sure that the thing that people are stumbling over is Jesus Christ himself and the gospel itself and not our cultural baggage. And so we need to fight for clarity. We need to accurately and faithfully represent the gospel to others. And so my burden this morning is that we maintain and fight for clarity and that we keep it free from cultural baggage. And so we're going to spend some time identifying where that cultural baggage is sort of seeped into our understanding and expectation of the gospel. And what is, what is exciting about this is that when we're careful that those, those places where people have a misunderstanding of the gospel or where they, where they sort of see the gospel through the lens of cultural baggage, if we're able to step in and present the gospel powerfully and clearly, they're wonderful opportunities. So I'm not just talking about sort of rebuking and guarding our own hearts. I also want to highlight the opportunity in all of this for us. And so I have a dual agenda. Clarity and opportunity is where I want to, what I want to impress upon us this morning. And so here are the two ideas that we're going to unpack. So the first thing we're going to look at, cultural myths and the gospel. And then what does it mean to demythologize the gospel? That's a, that's a mouthful. We'll try, to, we'll try to get inside what that means here. So first, let's, let's consider cultural myths and the gospel. And so when I say cultural myths, this is what I mean. I'm using the term myth in the sense of a story or a narrative, whether it is true or not, that gives a group of people a sense of history and identity and values and meaning and purpose. It's a defining story, a defining narrative, and every culture has its stories and its myths. So for us in the United States, whether you are a citizen of this country or not, being a part of the United States, you're wrapped up in this story and this narrative that our history involves throwing off the rule of England and asserting independence. And there is a true and real historical account of that. That actually happened. And there's evidence of that all over the place. The fact that we're living the way that we do, and you can go to Washington, D.C., or go throughout the country, and you can see evidence of this happening. There's a, a real history to this. And for all the heroics and good, that history is complicated and messy. It's shot through with good and bad. And what happens, such history achieves mythic status when all of the, com the complexity and the mess gets bowled over and it's just reduced to the simple message of a group of dudes and women fighting to throw off tyranny. And so it gets very reduced down to one single element. And what happens is, is out of that narrative, the ultimate value and good that defines our identity is freedom. 
Like it gets reduced to, hey, everything is filtered through this highest good, which is political, economic, religious freedom. And when we begin to get inside such myths, we can get in trouble. When we begin to say, hey, there's more to the story than that. It's a little more complex than just that. Or, or maybe we need to raise questions of whether or not that is the highest and ultimate good. And we start stepping on some toes and start pushing on identity and values. Then, then people can get upset and people can start questioning. What? You don't like freedom? Or why do you hate America? Or you're a liberal, aren't you? Or you're one of those communists or socialists. Or you're a fill-in-the-blank. And so it, it can be a dangerous thing to press on myth. It can be a dangerous thing to press on some cultural history and say, hey, there's more to it than just what we want to reduce it to. So with that, that concept kind of as a backdrop, let's look at Acts 15. And we'll start in verse 1 and verses 4 through 5 because we read that an argument broke out within the church over the Jewish cultural and religious practice of circumcision. This is what we read. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Then in verse 4, when they, this is Paul and Barnabas, came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So this was happening within the church, this argument about what do we do with circumcision. And if you're familiar with scripture, familiar with Jewish history, you know that the, the act of circumcision, the practice of circumcision was an important part of the Jewish nat- national, cultural, and religious identity. You go back into Genesis 17 where God gives this to Abraham and says this is a mark of God's promises to his people. It physically marked the Jewish men and by extension their households as part of the covenant community. And being part of this community defined your identity, your values, your morality, your religious beliefs, your practices, your meaning, your purpose. It, it marked you as this is who I am and all the implications of who I am. And Israel's history, the promises of God, the practice of circumcision, they're not myths in the sense that they are semi-true stories that may or may not have happened. They're real history. We believe scripture, the Bible, the Old Testament is real, literal history. It happens. But this practice of circumcision took on mythic status once the Jewish people elevated its importance and practice beyond what God commanded or intended. See, circumcision for the Jews, much like baptism for the Christian, was intended to signify faith in the covenantal promises of God. It was a mark that I trust and depend and am loyal to the one true God by who, by his grace, has rescued and redeemed me from slavery and sin and brought me into a relationship with himself. And so at the heart of circumcision is salvation by grace through faith. But the Jews forgot this. The Jewish people and the leaders at the time had moved away from seeing their need for grace and elevated their status as the chosen people of God to an arrogant and legalistic proportions. It was, I'm circumcised, I'm the man. I belong to the the in crowd. I'm important, I'm somebody, I'm the chosen people, yo. It, It became this status symbol for them. Their ability to say, hey, we're separate, we're better, and we look at everybody else as pagan and lost and unclean. And they taught that 
Salvation came only through keeping the law and the Jewish customs rather than it marking a people saved by grace and in need of grace. It marked them as the people who had all the answers, as the ones that everybody else needed to be like, as the ones who needed to adopt their customs and their practices and their religious beliefs if they wanted to be saved. And so it was a status symbol for them. Conveniently left out was all the sin and rebellion and hard-heartedness and need for salvation and redemption that was shot through Israel's history. It's kind of convenient that the Pharisees left that part out. But make no mistake, and we see this in the New Testament. See, Paul and Barnabas and, the other, and, and Peter and the other apostles weren't saying, hey, Jews, stop circumcising. They weren't saying, hey, th- this, is, this needs to go for you and your culture They were saying, you've taken something in your culture, you've taken a practice that was meant to point to the gospel, and you are now interpreting the gospel through that practice. And so they had flipped it. And so something that was meant, yes, for the Jews to continue to do, to mark them as a distinct ethnic group and a people of God and to remind them of the promises in Jesus Christ— had now become something they had so elevated that it was distorting the gospel for them. And so their culture was defining the gospel rather than the gospel defining their culture. And so for us as Americans, how is this happening? In what ways do we allow our culture and the cultural myths and the narrative that we live in in our history to define the gospel for us? How have we imported baggage into what we believe the gospel means and the implications of what it means to follow Jesus? Where have some good aspects of our culture been elevated to such an extent that now the gospel is carrying that baggage? Well, I want to assert two things, and here we go, stepping on some toes. (laughs) One is the American dream. Central to American culture is the idea and the ideal, really, of the American dream, which says that because we live in a politically free country with economic freedom and opportunity, if I work hard, I can fulfill my dreams, get an education, have a family, achieve financial success, purchase a home and a car, and other items that allow me to live in comfort and enjoy life. And if we go a little deeper, underneath that is this belief and, and hope in an assertion of free market capitalism. Because within a free market economy, we can produce things and people can consume things. And we have this economy that builds and creates. And then I go and I buy the stuff that people build and create. And it's this back and forth. Now, I'm not speaking of this cynically. I'm just trying to talk to the mechanics of what happens. And so we have within a free market economy the production and consumption of what are called goods and services. And and just listen to the language that we use, goods, which is another way of saying products. We've imported moral language on the things that we make. They're goods. It's good to have. And and so what's underneath all of that? What's the belief driving that? What's the value driving that? It's good to have these things. It's good to consume. Why? Because such economic freedom, the ability to purchase items for my comfort, the ability to build a life of comforts, leads to my happiness. I mean, this is right in our founding documents. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. 
And so underneath this cultural idea of the American dream is happiness and my pursuit of it. Now let me be very clear about something. Praise God for economic freedom. Praise God for the opportunities to pursue education and careers and to enjoy the benefit of that hard work. Praise God we are able to achieve a level of comfort and a quality of life. And it's available to millions. I mean, we have opportunities in this country that are afforded, that that, that other countries know little of. And that's God's blessing and providence on us. And so we don't back away from that. We don't shy away from that. We don't have to apologize for that in the sense that, oh man, I should feel guilty about working hard and trying to purchase a home and, and build a life of comfort and take care of my family. No. I am very much pro-free market. If you know me personally, you know that. However, and this is what we need to push on, when we uncritically and unwittingly allow consumerism to shape what it means for us to be a Christian and begin to impact the way we view our faith and talk about our faith, we begin to distort the gospel. When Jesus becomes another product to be consumed for my happiness, when the gospel is reduced to Jesus wants me happy, Jesus wants me to have a college education, Jesus wants me to have money and comfort, then we're preaching a gospel of the American dream and not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sadly, in far too many ways, this is how the gospel is presented in our culture. Jesus is sold and marketed like so many other spiritual self-help goods. You're unhappy? Well, try Jesus, because like Coca-Cola, he's the real thing. You got milk? Well, really, do you got Jesus? Your, your, your marriage is in trouble? You want to be happy in your marriage? You want to be happy in your parenting? You, you want to be happy in your, your career? You want to be happy as a businessman? You want more wealth? You want more success? You want more discipline? You want to be less anxious? Well, try Jesus. And so we stack him up right next to every other product that's being sold as a means to happiness for us. And so we have an American Jesus who is nothing but another good in our market economy. And this is what happens when we begin to allow the consumerist production, I, I, I produce, I create, I consume value to shape our faith. Yes, Jesus is after your joy, and yes, Jesus is after your happiness, but not by reinforcing your consumerist impulse. And so here, here's a question for us. Here's something we all need to do some soul searching. Have we been so shaped by our culture that we can't tell the difference between following Jesus and using him as another product? And we need to do some hard soul searching about the way we respond and treat Jesus. See, he isn't the servant of our desire for comfort and happiness. He is the resurrected and reigning sovereign Lord of the universe, and he's worthy of all majesty and praise and worship. And when we reduce him to another product, we trivialize him. And we trivialize the message of the gospel that is freedom and hope and salvation and redemption and restoration. Jesus says, follow me and die to yourself in order to find real, true, eternal life. And so when we subsume the gospel in Jesus to our American dream and to the consumerism that drives so much of our culture, 
Here's what happens. It leaves untouched our rebellion and our sin and our propensity to chase joy and happiness and meaning and purpose in the things that we can consume by finding our identity and our ability to purchase and gain. And so this gospel of consumerism, this American dream gospel, leaves untouched a fundamental problem and brokenness and rebellion in our heart. And so it's not good news because it can't set us free from sin. It's not good news because it can't redeem us from fallenness and judgment. It can't redeem us from the deepest and darkest parts of our soul. And so there's no good news. There's no gospel in that. And so for us as Christians, just how we respond to faith, how we respond to the gospel, how we respond to Jesus, if it's driven by this consumerist impulse, then this has a deadly effect in the church, has a deadly effect in our soul. But what's more, what is it that non-Christians see? Do they see Jesus tacked on to our selfish pursuit of wealth and status and comfort and happiness? Like when your non-Christian friends and coworkers and neighbors see your faith lived out, is Jesus just being tacked on to your pursuit of the American dream? And then what about all of, and sorry, what, what about all of the Jesus junk that comes across as Christians just trying to hawk their products? Sorry, I, I, I'm going to try not to make this rant too long, but, but sometimes I think we give this impression that in our evangelism, really what we're just trying to sell is Christian goods. Hey, go buy this t-shirt, go buy this bumper sticker, go buy this video, go buy this movie, go buy these things that are Christian. And so there's this, this money-making aspect that follows sometimes on our proclamation of the gospel, and non-Christians are thinking, well, one, your products are junk because they're cheap, but the other is, what are you trying to do? Why are you trying to come after my money? Why are you trying to make me a consumer when you're asking me to follow Jesus? And so in some ways, non-Christians, and if you're in this room and you're cynical about that, in some ways you have a right to be. Unfortunately, we as a church, and I'm using us all, we, because we can't say, oh no, those Christians over there. It's, it's all of us, this is in all of our hearts. We have a tendency to do this. And so that is the first kind of cultural myth, American dream. The second is this American exceptionalism. The other piece of this is an unhealthy American exceptionalism, I should say, which is an improper aligning of American politics and nationalism with the gospel. Now again, let me be clear on something. America is exceptional in many ways, utterly unique in history, and that doesn't happen without the providence and sovereignty of God. And so America is utterly unique in the history of nations and empires in many ways. The political, economic, cultural freedom that we have, our scientific and technology advancements, our military achievements, in many ways are unparalleled in history. And so we should never miss how much God has blessed this nation through providence and common grace. Oh, we are so richly blessed and we should be thankful and grateful for that. We should, we should in many ways, celebrate the uniqueness of this country. It's not wrong to be patriotic and have a nationalistic bent that wants American political leaders to take care of American interests. 
This is our country, our home. We should care about, uh, care about it and take pride in ownership. So there's nothing wrong with, with having that sense of ownership and feeling that identity and that patriotism. I mean, we just celebrated the 4th of July. I mean, we, when we talk about consumerism, it's just always funny to me how for, for like a five, maybe even like a three-second burst of light and sound, oh, there went 20 bucks. Oh, there went 15 bucks. But we, we celebrate the uniqueness of this country. And, and we go all out, and that's a good thing. However, and hear me on this, the United States is not the kingdom of God. Blessed as we have been, we are not God's chosen nation. You want to talk about language of chosen nation, go to 1 Peter 2. You are a holy nation. Who is he talking about? The church. We belong to a chosen nation, but that nation is not defined by geographical borders. It's not defined by ethnicity. It's not defined and made up by a constitution written by men. It's defined by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's defined by those who are united by faith to Jesus Christ. And it's built on a covenant that God has made. And so we're part of a greater nation. And so it is important for us to recognize that. Because for all the good that the United States represents, for all of the freedom and for how we have been a force for good in history and throughout our world, our culture is still shot through with sin, with horrific sin, with sin that we export all over the world and we should be ashamed of. And as those who follow Christ and recognize more than any that there is sin in our hearts and there is sin in any political system, there is sin in any nation, we should not be afraid to call out sin in our culture. We should not be afraid to call out sin in our political system and our political leaders when we see it. We should not be afraid to speak to systemic injustice, racism and sexism and economic oppression and environmental abuse. We shouldn't give ourselves over to a cultural arrogance where we have this us versus them, where America is always the good guy and everybody else is always the bad guy. And, and to conversely, we flip this around, while the gospel certainly has social justice implications, we cannot reduce the gospel and box it in by social justice agendas because then we reduce it. We make it about just this one thing when the gospel is so much bigger. And so our faith certainly shapes and informs our political views. But let's be sure that it is our faith in the gospel defining our political views, not our political views defining our gospel. Let the gospel be the thing we submit to. Because if our view of the gospel begins to look a lot like the Republican Party platform or the Democratic Party platform or the Libertarian Party platform or the Green Party platform or the alt-rights or whatever group you want to associate with, if, if their platform is the thing you see the gospel through, then you have subsumed the gospel. You have submitted the gospel of Jesus Christ to those platforms, because I guarantee you the gospel will blow up so much of every single platform. It's going to challenge and confront. And so we have to be careful that our politics and our view of nationalism and our view of American exceptionalism has not overtaken. When, when 
my gospel looks a lot like a particular party's platform, what are we saying about the authority and supremacy of Christ? What are we saying as our truest and deepest hope? And when non-Christians see us as, quote-unquote, tools of a certain political party rather than a prophetic voice with a higher allegiance and a deeper hope, what are we communicating about the gospel? And so between the American dream gospel and American exceptionalism gospel, our cultural baggage can run very deep. And it hasn't gone unnoticed. Church, it has not gone unnoticed by those who do not profess faith in Christ. So to give an example, the song American Jesus from the punk band Bad Religion, while this is somewhat of a cynical take, I think this captures well the baggage that Jesus can carry in our culture. These are the lyrics to the song, a part of the lyrics. He's the farmer's barren fields, the force the army wields, the expression on the faces of the starving millions, the power of the man. He's the fuel that drives the clan. He's the motive and conscience of the murderer. He's the preacher on TV, the false sincerity, the form letter that's written by the big computers, the nuclear bombs, the kids with no moms. And I'm fearful that he's inside me. We've got the American Jesus. See him on the interstate. We've got the American Jesus exercising his authority. We got the American Jesus bolstering national faith. We've got the American Jesus overwhelming millions every day. Is the gospel we are believing and communicating carrying such cultural baggage? We have to do some soul searching if we are going to be salt and light in our community, especially in this community. We need to be clear on what our gospel is and what we are proclaiming to others. So how do we do this? How do we demythologize the gospel and sort of unload some of this cultural baggage from it? Well, first, we have to recognize we can't escape culture. We're not these people kind of floating in this zen-like state where we just hover above culture. I'm not impacted by it. I'm above all of that stuff. I don't interact with that stuff. No. We live life on the ground level. We live inside culture. It's not absolutely wrong to be shaped by it and interact with it. We speak others to others in the, with the gospel in culturally uh, appropriate ways, in ways that they're going to understand. And so we engage and we are part of culture. We don't escape it. But we need to allow the defining narrative for us to be something bigger than the defining narrative of our culture. The defining story for us needs to be a greater story. And so this is how we demythologize the gospel. First, we tell ourselves a greater story. So let's go back to Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas told a greater story to the churches. In Acts 15, 2 through 3, this is what we read. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, that means they were straight up fighting. No small dissension means it was getting ugly and it was getting heated. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Here's what Paul and Barnabas do. They go through the churches and say, hey, let let me tell you about what God is up to in saving the Gentiles. They, They start telling a greater story to the churches. God is saving and has nothing to do with the Gentiles getting circumcised. God is saving through the gospel of Jesus Christ and this gospel is powerful. 
And so they go and remind these brothers, hey, look what God is up to. Look at this greater story than what these Jewish leaders want to reduce it to. So they begin telling a greater story about the power of the gospel. And then when the apostles and elders get to Jerusalem, they do much the same thing. In Acts 15, 7 through 9, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Peter gets up and says, hey guys, remember what happened here? God came to me. He sent me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. They believed the gospel. They believed in Jesus and God gave them the Holy Spirit just like us. And this has nothing to do with them adopting a certain culture, them getting circumcised. This has everything to do with the grace and glory of Jesus Christ. And so Peter reminds them, hey, there's a better and bigger story going on here, and let's remind ourselves of that. And then James follows suit in Acts 15, 13 through 18. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, meaning Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. James reminds them, hey, guess what? The story has always been God was going to save the Gentiles. God was going to redeem them apart from the law, apart from circumcision, apart from adopting certain cultural practices through Jesus Christ, through grace. And what what he's essentially saying here is that these Jewish teachers and really the Jewish culture at the time had lost sight of this narrative. They had distorted their own history, distorted their own narrative. And so he's calling them back to that greater story of redemption that the prophets spoke of and saying, hey, let's tell ourselves this greater story of salvation that includes people from all nations and tribes and tongues. And it's built upon Jesus Christ, not conformity to a culture, not be by being circumcised and following the law. And so what Peter and Paul and James is saying is we have something so much greater than cultural myths. We have a narrative that is far greater than what our culture can tell us. So how do we, First City Church, living in Bellevue, Nebraska, or Papillion, Nebraska, or Plattsmouth, or Omaha, living in this area at this time in this culture, how do we demythologize the gospel? Well, in much the same way that, that Peter and Paul and James and these churches did, we have to consistently tell ourselves a greater story. And how we do this is much how we've been doing it, by leaning in and trusting the means of grace that God has given us, by consistently coming and rehearsing the gospel on Sunday, by rehearsing the gospel in our families, rehearsing the gospel at gospel community, by going to the word of God, by being shaped by this greater story. As the great missionary missiologist Leslie Newbigin writes in the gospel in a pluralistic society, this is how the church holds on to the gospel. It will be in the life of a community which remembers, rehearses, and lives by the story which the Bible tells and of which the central focus is the story told in the New Testament. 
This remembering and rehearsing will be through the continual reading of and reflection on the Bible and the continual repetition of the sacraments of baptism in the Eucharist, which is the Lord's Supper. And it will maintain its link with, its continuity with the body of men to whom Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you, through a ministry in which the personal call of Jesus, follow me, is continued through the generations, not in abstract moral or political principles, but in the actual personal encounters in which men and women who have themselves been called call others to follow. We need to consistently tell ourselves the greater story. We need to consistently be shaped by the true gospel as spoken in scripture, which we come and rehearse through song and confession and profession which we rehearse every time we baptize new believers, every time we come on Sundays and take the Lord's Supper. As you are teaching your kids, moms and dads, as, as husbands and wives, as you are encouraging each other and shaping each other in the gospel, as we gather in gospel community to love each other and challenge each other and remind ourselves of what the true gospel is and sometimes having to say hard things about the way we've allowed the culture to come in and shape us. We rehearse and we remember and we tell ourselves a greater story. We remind ourselves salvation isn't in consumption. My hope isn't in how much stuff I can get. Politics and American empire is not the hope of the world. It's the kingdom of God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's Christ returning to consummate his kingdom. We tell ourselves a greater story. And then we go and we tell others a greater story. And here I love the example of Jesus. See, Jesus was encultured. He lived in a specific time, in a specific place with a specific culture. He had cultural practices and cultural values and beliefs, and yet these cultural values and practices were not the defining truth in the narrative for him. He had a greater story to tell. He had a bigger purpose. He had a bigger mission. He was about his father's business. He's about his father's glory. And here's something that Jesus did regularly some of the most powerful evangelistic and teaching moments for Jesus is when he told this greater story to smash through cultural myths. And so he had these moments where he said, you have heard it said this, but I say to you this. He, he confronted the cultural expectations and even the, the cultural ways of viewing salvation in God and he brought something greater to bear. He, he upped the stakes, so to speak. And one of, my, one of my favorite examples of this is the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. She, she goes on about places of worship and, and where the Jews worship one place, the Samaritans worship in another place. And so kind of going back and forth about the proper expectations of worship, proper place of worship. And Jesus says, there's coming a time where we're not going to be worshiping here or there, but something greater. So a deeper sense of worship, a greater sense of worship rooted in Christ himself. Or, or when the Pharisees and the Jews got all caught up on the importance of the temple and Jesus said, something greater than the temple is here. He's talking about himself. And so their expectations, their misconceptions, the way the culture had shaped them, Jesus steps in and says, you think this, but let me tell you something greater. Let me tell you something bigger. Let me challenge you in your assumptions in the way that culture has shaped you. And so for us, evangelism is an opportunity to smash the myths and point to a better story. But we've got to be willing to perhaps confront our culture in some ways. 
This was driven home to me in a pretty profound way when I was at the University of South Dakota talking with a classmate. Um, so we, I, I was in a class on religion and conflict. And so all the ways that religion has caused conflicts in the world. And so that was a fun class, sitting in a liberal secular university talking about the bad of religion. And after class, I'm talking with one of my classmates who, he, he was a white American dude, but he had a heart for Native Americans. And so he had done a lot of Native American advocacy. And so it was just his passion in his heart. And I happened to have three adopted brothers who are Native Americans. So we started talking about this. And, and he knew I was a Christian based on comments in the class. And he knew I was a very, very devoted Christian. and had a lot of convictions about some things. But talking about the issue of how our nation's history and the way that we have treated, and even the church has treated Native Americans, opened up some doors. It, it allowed him to kind of drop some misconceptions about me because I'm willing to say, hey, yeah, we're sinful people and we've done some stupid, sinful things. Because my hope isn't in the perfection of American policy. My hope is in Jesus Christ. And so I can own sin. I can own institutional sin. I can own where my nation has gone off the rails. And we can talk about that openly and freely. And after walking away from that conversation, I, I can just remember going, wow, how often do I run to defense and want to minimize sin and want to minimize and kind of elevate our cultural status? And in doing that, miss opportunities to talk about how much greater Jesus is. And so in what ways are we able to smash people's expectations about what G- who Jesus is and what it means to follow him and what the gospel means? When are those opportunities to say, you have heard it said, try Jesus. He'll make you happy. He'll make you a better parent or a better businessman. Or he'll get rid of your anxiety. But I tell you, to lose your life is to gain it. And that Jesus is going to bring you into a deeper joy and happiness. But that's going to come through dying to self, giving up sin, turning from sin, and following after him. You've heard it said that the United States is the greatest country on the planet, but I tell you a greater nation, a greater kingdom is here. One of hope and righteousness and justice and peace beyond anything American power and democracy can offer and achieve. This isn't America hating. This is about glorifying and exalting and celebrating the kingdom of God and the gospel. And so in conclusion, church, first, let's do some soul searching. Where are we guilty of perpetuating these myths? And where can we cloud our communicating the gospel? And then, where are those myths being believed that cause people to reject the gospel? Where are those opportunities to step in with something greater and tell them a greater story? Where can we step in with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members and say, you have heard this, but let me tell you something greater. And so church, as we begin to grow in our faith and our hope and our obedience and evangelism, let us consistently be telling ourselves a greater story so we can go out into this world and tell this world a greater story. Amen?